walked right out of the machinery. Chapter 5 So, how long do you think you can keep this up for? Jacob, Selmec, whoever, but it's Jacob doing the talking, asks. He settles himself comfortably on a log and gazes out at the morning, like he's sitting out on a porch shooting the breeze, like it's a relief to take the weight off of his feet. But he knows Jacob doesn't feel tired physically any more than he does. He shrugs. Jacob unscrews the cap of one of the plastic bottles of water he's carrying and takes the swig. Then he holds the other one out and keeps holding it, not bothering to glance over. Okay, fine. He takes the bottle and sits down, mainly because Jacob's wearing the retired general, and don't you forget it, Sonny, face. There are fights he'll think twice before picking. Memory ghosts the image of Selmec's last host a few centuries ago, newly blended, a round-faced young woman listening to arguments in the council chamber with the same shrewd half-smile he's seen on Jacob's face, the smile of someone who knows better but is giving you enough rope to hang yourself with. But no, that's one of Jacob's expressions from before he got snaked, the one evoked by deep space radar telemetry. Isn't it? And, overlapping, the memory of an old woman with the same round face, dying serenely on the crystal slab, Sarouche. He remembers that, his memory, not the snake's. Look, Jacob says, I know you've had a rough time. You both have. But moping around here and acting crazy is not going to change anything. Oh, yeah, gotta love that Carter family sensitivity. Carter tries for tact, even when she doesn't manage it. Jacob just couldn't give a shit. That's your advice? Suck it up and deal? Jacob's eyes narrow. You want to put it like that? Then yeah. It's either that or not deal. So which one are you going to pick? Didn't know it was multiple choice. I've always flunked on those. A frustrated sigh. You think this is easy for anyone. I didn't exactly wake up one morning and think, hey, I've got some free time. I could get an alien symbiote implanted in my head and be living on another planet in time for dinner. It's a lot to adjust to. I get that. But you've dealt with worse. Wariness in his head. He has heard the whispers about Selmec's Ta'ari host, more outspoken and opinionated than is usual. Disconcertingly so. Selmuk's experience is revered, but some fear that with increasing age, she has become eccentric, unduly influenced by the host, perhaps. The irony, 
tastes like ashes in his mouth. You were dying, he manages. Yeah, well, newsflash, Jack, so were you. This is better. Then, Jacob's chin dips, and his voice drops a few octaves. The process of blending is inevitably one of compromise and negotiation, Selmick says. Jacob and I have had our disagreements. The tone is fond, and the snort that follows is purely Jacob. Damn straight we have. We worked it out. We'll go on working it out. It's no different than a marriage. Flunked that, too, he doesn't say. It sounds maudlin, even in his head. And there's something bracing about Jacob's cheerful lack of sympathy. Jacob's never believed in mollycoddling people if he thinks they're capable of coping. Still, he's not going to go down without a fight. Sounds more like everyone saying that since it's inevitable, I might as well lie back and enjoy it. Jacob favors him with a look that says he's not even going to dignify that with a response. The two of you got off on the wrong foot, no denying that, but I've asked around and the council was assured of your consent. George backs them up on that. Wash of heat through his memory. If he consented, if he was capable of consent, why would he have lashed out so? He doesn't understand why the host insists on maintaining otherwise, except out of sheer perversity. The word temporary was used, I distinctly recall. Well, no one saw that coming. Not that a full blending's always easy to undo, but... Difficult to separate two entwined nervous systems and leave both reasonably intact. There's always risk, and never a good time. Whether a symbiote is still weak from a new blending or deeply enmeshed in an old one. But it is rare for it to be needed, rare for separation to occur, for any reason but death. Some hosts will consent to a temporary blending in an emergency, and then agree to permanence later, once they fully understand the meaning of being Tok'ra and the hazards of separation. He wonders if that's what Toran was hoping for. Another head dip. You were Baal's prisoners for more than ten days, as far as we can determine, Selmek says. Ten days. It doesn't seem right, but then he doesn't know what would. As if Baal's prison warped time like it warped gravity, each death a rupture in space-time. We are aware of his methods. The blending has not been your only challenge. Interrogation is nothing new. 
nothing he hasn't been trained for. The Guawuld have always been torturers, ineffective as a tool, of course, unless one has the means to verify any information obtained. It is why the Tok'ra first developed the Zotark detector. But then, information has only ever been an excuse for the Guawuld to torture, not a reason. Baal is known to be more skilled than most. His Lotars rarely survived long. If they broke too easily, he grew bored. And if they would not break, they only earned greater attention from him. And she had already lived longer than most. When he looks up, Jacob is watching him. Jacob or Selmec, he doesn't know which one of them is in charge now and who that ancient sadness belongs to. How do you cope? He hears himself say. And he'd blame it on the snake, except it sounds like his own voice, so he guesses not. I mean, not with the... He gestures in the direction of Baal's Hotel California. You can check in, but you can never leave. With all this crap in your head. Well, there's a reason we call it a blending. Yeah, and right now he's thinking cuisine art. Drop your brain in with the snakes and set to puree. But Jacob's still talking. Usually, you've got some control over what's shared at first. Not this kind of bleed-through. Looks like the sarcophagus messed that up. And later? You said at first. Jacob shrugs. You can't build the Berlin Wall in your own head. How about good fences make good neighbors? A flash of gold in Jacob's eyes, and Selmec says... It is, I believe, what makes us different from the Guauld. The neurology of the blending is the same, though some people hate to admit it. Jacob's intonations in the snake voice, and he's never seen the lines between them blurred so much. He wonders whether somehow he didn't see it before, or whether this is something that they're deliberately showing him now. Two minds sharing thoughts and memories cannot help but intermingle, but the Guauld deny this process, guarding their own identities jealously. They pluck information from the minds of their hosts, but blind themselves to all else. If they acknowledge what their hosts suffered, they could not live as they do. To be Tok'ra is to accept the nature of the blending, to influence, and allow ourselves to be influenced in return. A minute shift in attention, as if Somex somehow turning from him to the snake. But this time, the snake actually seems uncomfortable at being addressed, as if it had been sulking around, hoping to avoid direct attention. I believe the Ta'ari may be a test case, 
as Jacob would say. Over the millennia, we have grown accustomed to hosts who have known only slavery, who are grateful for rescue and used to taking symbiotes for gods. Perhaps we have grown too comfortable. The Ta'ari are... A hesitation before Jacob interrupts. Pig-headed is what Selmik's trying to say. Too damn reckless, sometimes, if you ask me. Kids playing with machetes and gasoline. But it's what we're bringing to the table. And we. A different meaning to we now. Have to find out if we're truly capable of living as equals. Put up or shut up. To translate loosely. A flare of baffled hurt. Resentment that Zomek of all people would criticize him, blame him by implication, as if he has not already risked so much for the host's sake, jeopardized his reputation, held back while the host insults and alienates the other Tok'ra. By the way, Jacob adds, another shift of attention, Gimlet gaze switching to the host as if he's trying to catch him off guard. Zomek doesn't remember Kanan as a chatty type, but he was never this quiet. He shifts uneasily on the log. For once, the snake's not nagging for permission to speak, so now he gives Jacob, giving him crap about it instead. All he needs. Yeah, about that. What does Selmek remember? Honestly... Jacob grimaces. Okay, maybe he's not a bundle of laughs. A traditionalist. Translation. Even Selmek thinks the snake's an asshole. Smart guy, though, Jacob adds. A good, long-range, covert operative. One of the best we've got. You think we'd send an amateur against Baal? He rolls the water bottle between his palms and looks up, squinting into the sunshine. You could have done worse, Jack, he says quietly. You could have done a lot worse. And if you keep him locked up, don't let him talk. You're doing just the same thing the Gua'uld do. Hits him like a punch to the gut, leaving him breathless, too startled to be angry right away. Bullshit! He manages and sucks in air. Can't believe that even Jacob would have the balls to say that. That, hey, for starters, this is my body. I was here first. Anyway, he, it, can take over any time it wants. Sure, Jacob says flatly, if that's the way you want to look at it. So, what do you want me to do about it? Think about it, Jack. That's all I'm asking. He takes another swig of water. Though, in case you haven't noticed, we're still fighting a war with the Gua'uld. Once you've finished thinking it over, 
you might want to, I don't know, pitch in, lend a hand. He snorts and gets a sharp sideways glance. Jacob's a hard ass, but he's a smart hard ass. Got to know that he's been feeling like a fifth wheel. We've got a quorum of council members here now, since Toran got back. Jacob continues, casually. There's going to be a strategy meeting this evening. And... And I'd like for you to be there. There's some things going down that you should know about. It may have slipped your attention, but we're holding the alliance together by the skin of our teeth here. It'd be good not to be the only person in the room who's got ties to Earth. Jacob screws the cap back onto his bottle of water and stands, stretching. Plus, we can use your input. That tiny shift of attention again. Both of you. I don't know how much the SGC's told you, but your Tok'ra security clearance is still good enough to get you in. It's a bribe. A lure, he knows. A snake gets you access, gets you back in the game. If the council had chosen to downgrade his security rating, he wouldn't know about it. Drop enough levels, and he might never even know the meeting was taking place. Whatever his current status, he knows that Silmek is making a gesture. One that extends beyond the desire to provide therapeutic occupation for the host. Something's happening. J-Hut, past the generator shed, turn left. You can't miss it. Meeting's at 2300 hours, but we're on a 26-hour day here, so make sure you've reset your watch. If you feel like dropping by. I'll check my day planner, he says, and watches Jacob's mouth twist in amusement. You do that, Jack. Before he drops his head and looks up, golden-eyed. Colonel O'Neill, Selmuk says. Believe me when I say we are aware that a permanent blending was not your choice. Wry smile. Jacob's and not Jacob's. You have ensured we cannot help but be aware, and it is a violation of all we hold most dear. But it may be that you bring us something we need. After Jacob's gone, he takes a swallow of water and finds himself draining the bottle in one long pool, surprised by how thirsty he is. The day gets darker. His watch turns out to be running on something like Hong Kong time, but eventually he runs out of excuses and heads over to the Tokra huts a few hours after nightfall. His skin starts to prickle before he's even got in the building, an aqueda buzz that's worst in his fingertips. By the prickling of my thumbs, 
He's never going to get used to that. The first room he goes into is dimly lit and quiet. A few of the snakes glance up, gazes skimming over him and away again, contemptuous or uninterested. The courtesy of not drawing attention to his Ta'ari uniform, not showing curiosity. Doubtless, they all know his condition. Something's niggling at him, but it takes him a moment to spot what's out of place. No door in the doorframe. They must have taken all the interior doors off their hinges, which counts as vandalism or defacement of U.S. government property, at the very least. The Tok'ra hold no secrets from each other. There is no need for doors or partitions. Like hell there isn't, and the snake who told him that turned out to have plenty of secrets in the end. A couple of them are standing in a dark corner, doing something kissing. He looks away hastily. They're moving slowly, close enough to breathe each other's breath, fingers intertwined. The flashbulb visual isn't enough to let him tell gender. In the identical uniforms, they could be a man and a woman, two men or two women, as if it mattered. The other Tok'ra don't bother to look, or to avoid looking. Blaze, like they've seen it all before. He edges out into the corridor. Physical contact on bases is always easy, conferring no ties or obligations. The demands of the cause rarely allow time for the formation of attachments that might interfere. Both host and symbiote have sexual needs and it's convenient to meet them with sister brothers, the comfort of like minds and skin against skin. Developing ties to an unblended human would be impractical, perverse, like copulating with a child or an animal. Again, with the not needing to know. He's always thought that snakes and sex are two concepts which shouldn't ever be near each other, and he'd be happy if he could get through the rest of his life without having to think about it. And he's never going to jerk off ever again. There's noise from further along the corridor. Not the murmur he'd expect from a human crowd, but he can hear voices raised the tone of someone addressing a meeting, must be that way. Still, he hesitates, not quite able to make himself head over towards the noise. When it comes to the crunch, it goes against all his instincts to walk into a nest of snakes on his own. He's probably the only human in the building. No more or less human than any other host there. He leans his back against a thin partition wall, then mutters, Fine, fine, do your thing. Let the snake be the one to deal with the stairs for a while. 
nothing happens. So he ducks his chin down, doing his best to copy the head dip thing they all do. Then he feels his head flop, muscles going limp before the snake picks up the reins. Must be why they do it in the first place. The snake squares his shoulders and pushes away from the wall, and okay, it's almost easier this way. As long as he doesn't try to move, doesn't think about the fact that he's not in control. He can pretend he's just a passenger, that he's not the one striding down the corridor. Like he can watch from the outside, a tall snake-headed with gray hair and an arrogant, unsmiling face. The BDUs are the only thing wrong with the picture, and the snake manages to carry himself as if he's really wearing the Puritan brown leathers, and it's only an optical illusion that he's not. The meeting room must take up half the length of the Coneset hut, and it's packed. But there's no background noise, nobody whispering to their neighbor, or shuffling papers, or hell, even passing notes in the back row. The Tok'ra stand still and silent as statues, like they don't bother looking human when there aren't any outsiders to see. No chairs. You don't need them if you don't get tired, and of course, they don't bother with soft furnishings in their tunnels, though he's always felt that some drapery would do wonders to make them more homey. Even the counselors are standing, grouped around one side of a small table, while the crowd leaves a circle of empty space in front of it, an arena for speakers. People shift back as he enters the room, stepping aside to make room for him. It is reassuring to note that he is still acknowledged, his expertise recognized. He would remain at the back if this was a seminar on scientific progress, but in a discussion of intelligence gathering and strategy, his place is in the front ranks. After years spent undercover, it is always a comfort to return to the safety of a base, where there is no need for lies, where everyone's skills are known. Everyone entitled to contribute as they are best qualified. All snakes are equal, but some are more equal than others, huh, Skippy? He ignores the jibe. Equilibrium will not be helped by searching through memories for the reference. The presence of so many Jaffa here must be considered to compromise security until a new base can be found someone is saying. Even if there are no traitors among them, they cannot be expected to maintain secrecy if captured. Names, faces, too many, and he deliberately turns his attention away, shuts off the flood before it can overwhelm him. Lots of people the snake knows. Got it. Enough. Some he doesn't recognize, they must have taken new hosts since he saw them last, but no one has asked him to identify himself, and that can only mean that they all know of his host, his situation. 
there is hardly likely to be another Tok'ra attending the meeting into our uniform. But the snake's no shrinking violet. It's planted itself in the middle of the front row, and is busy taking up space again, as if it's used to using physical presence to intimidate, to subtly bully others out of its way. If we do not make contact with a significant proportion of the cells being operated through Riza, an unacceptable level of fragmentation can only... Jacob looks up from one of the gizmos on the table, modified gold tablet, adapted to encrypt information and erase it without a trace, and catches his eyes, manages to convey, good to see you. And by the way, you're late. Toran follows Jacob's gaze and bows his head in silent greeting. He returns the gesture and lets his eyes close in relief. Perhaps his disgrace is not irretrievable. Around him, people step forwards, one by one, following imperceptible cues to report or critique or argue a point, then step back again. The invisible web of protocol and order, unspoken and understood. He wishes he had something to fidget with, keep his hands busy. If it was up to him, he'd sit back and let the noise wash over him until he could get a sense of the room, the real undercurrents of who's who and who's pushing what agenda. Getting a crib sheet from the snake's memories isn't good enough. But then, it's not up to him. He will return control to the host whenever it is desired. That's not what he meant. He settles for tuning out as much of the administrivia as he can. At least he doesn't have to pay attention just because the snake is, and thank God for that because everyone seems determined to turn the tiniest details into an opportunity for political point scoring, and the whole process drags on for hours. He has no idea how Jacob hasn't gone batshit, unless he somehow rigged that tablet to act as a Game Boy. But then, through the blah-blah, he hears one of the counselors say, Anubis remains the primary threat, loud and clear as the snake snaps into high alert. He registers movement behind him as several people leave the room, those whose security clearance is not high enough for this topic. They have not been able to place any operatives among Anubis's retinue, and that is a source of concern in itself. The status and identities of those assigned to his close allies must remain protected. It's weird. He instinctively wants to turn round, see who's going, but the snake keeps its eyes front. He can't even look out of the corner of his own eyes. He will not risk another attack until he can be sure that he can also defend himself. Someone disagreeing with whatever points just been made 
in tones of venomous politeness. His territorial position is weak, his armies limited. He will not divide his forces while other system lords can still turn on him. His three-dimensional mental map of the Gua'uld territories and alliances expands to fill his attention as he adjusts it, updating his knowledge of key outposts and major Jaffa troop deployments as they are mentioned. And holy shit, that's a lot of intel the Tok'ra haven't ever shared with the SGC. Not like that's exactly a shock, but still, seeing it all laid out like that, it makes him feel a whole lot better about how hard he pushed for the SGC's briefings to the Tok'ra to be edited into oblivion. Unlike the other system lords, Anubis has not concentrated his efforts on gaining territory, and nothing in the new data suggests a change in the pattern. He is not planning in terms of star systems controlled and populations enslaved. Instead, he seems to be pursuing technological advancement as a shortcut to power, searching for and reconstructing ancient technology. Disquieting original tactic for a Gua'uld. The Tok'ra have relied for centuries on the inflexibility of the system lords, their tendency to fall back on the same ritualized patterns. It has been their greatest weakness. But Anubis is something that even the Gua'uld fear. Canaan, the solemn young African-American, African alien? Whatever. Counselor with the scraped back hair and the vaguely familiar face. She offers a careful smile and adds, Colonel O'Neill, as if she's doing him a great favor. Oh yeah, that whole meteor deal. She was the one who gave SG-1 a ride home. He reaches and doesn't know if it's the snake's memory or his, that supplies the name Jalen. You have been assigned to monitor several of Anubis's allies, Jalen says, dropping the pretense that you means anyone except the snake. What is your assessment? The snake bows its head to her and takes a step forwards then settles itself with feet spaced shoulder-width apart, hands clasped behind its back, a glance down at the floor, gathering thoughts, forming words. He's never seen the snake this comfortable before, in its element. Zimpachna's power base has always been tenuous, the snake says, and he cringes at the sound of it coming from his own mouth, feeling his own lips and tongue arrange themselves around the distorted voice. He retains it only by groveling to those he believes more powerful than he. If he is loyal, it is because he believes Anubis still has use for him as a pawn. A flash of memory, 
sprinting down a corridor towards the escape pods while blasts from Yu's mothership shook the walls before he wrenches himself away from the thought and what came after forces a dismissive shrug. And Baal? He feels the fractional hesitation, not quite a flinch, feels the snake trying to cover it, invisible to anyone except him. Tokra courtesy, to assume that he can report on Baal with equanimity, not to insult him by assuming him weak. Baal remains an anomaly. He's almost grateful for the flat, expressionless voice. His interest in technology makes him useful to Anubis, but his loyalties are equivocal. Behind his back, he can feel his hands curled into fists, nails beginning to bite into his palm. Doesn't know if the snake even knows it's doing it. He is not thinking about knives. I do not believe that Anubis was aware of the outpost I was assigned to map. Another nod, releasing him. He steps backwards, and the other Tok'ra shift to make room for him, careful not to crowd him. He stops listening to the discussion for a while, letting it wash over him, the adrenaline wash through him. Easier to accelerate its metabolism that way, force the body into calm. He can feel Selmec's eyes on him and doesn't look up, for fear the pity he imagines there might break him. Then, through the static, he catches the ship Prometheus he nudges for control of the body and feels it handed back to him, almost surprised when it works, but he's getting the hang of this now, like tapping someone's shoulder to let them know that you want to edge past them in a narrow space. Jacob catches his eyes and gives a tight nod. This is it, then. He's still shaky, still jittery with adrenaline afterburn, but paying attention. Further reports have been intercepted, Jalen says. She places another tablet on the table. But there is still no pattern that we can discern. The first attacks were on minor players such as Tilgath, but now Camulus's mothership has been destroyed, and it is rumored that both Basset and Kali have lost garrisons. Toran is frowning. The snake recognizes the signs that his cool, analytical mind is still turning over a problem, refusing to jump to conclusions. The descriptions are consistent, he says. A ship of Ta'ari design, but using ancient weapons. Oh, hell, he's not liking this picture one little bit. No wonder Jacob wanted him there. Yeah. <sighs> Jacob exhales heavily. I've talked to the SGC, and the specs match. It's gotta be Prometheus. 
We know the NID were chasing a cache of ancient weaponry. Looks like they hit paydirt. A frisson of surprise at hearing a host do so much of the talking. Unusual in a council meeting, unless the symbiote is known to be very reserved. As if he had the same thought, Jacob dips his head and lets Selmec continue. The ship is of Ta'ari manufacture, but stolen by rogue elements in one of their government agencies. The echoing voice carries effortlessly across the room. Stargate Command cannot be held responsible for their actions. So they say. Toran idly taps one long finger on the tablet. Typical. Of course the Tok'ra would have to find a way to be difficult about this. Yeah, let's suspect that this is all some elaborate and completely pointless plot by the SGC, just so we can be paranoid about it. Selmec's eyes flash briefly. The hijackers include one Colonel Simmons of the NID and a Gua'uld in the body of a Ta'ari who had been held prisoner by them. Adrian Conrad, this just gets better and better. The bastard came damn close to having Carter's brain sliced and diced, and that was before he got a snake in his head. Being gwolded didn't improve his personality any. And now, Simmons has sprung him somehow. Stupid fucker. Yeah, it's the NID, he says out loud. N-I-D? Rogue N-I-D? Whatever. This is exactly the kind of shit they think is a good idea. People around him have turned to stare. What? He mouths at one of the people gaping at him. They're all supposed to be contributing according to their qualifications, right? And God knows he's qualified to recognize the N-I-D's style when he sees it. Toran smiles briefly, mirthlessly. The snake winces internally at the breach of protocol, too much to expect that the host would be able to understand. By attacking other system lords, they weaken opposition to Anubis, Jalen says, condescending to speak directly to him again. We have explained to the Ta'ari that removing individual Gua'uld only creates a power vacuum into which others will move. She sounds earnestly baffled. Explained to the Ta'ari. As if everything the Tok'ra said was broadcast to the entire planet. Special bulletin to the CNN. The galaxy is full of evil alien parasites who'd like to invade Earth, but we're not supposed to keep killing them because the other alien parasites say it's a bad idea. Look, he says. The NID aren't on my Christmas list either. But hey, dead gold. There's gotta be an upside to that. Jacob's eyes have narrowed, and he gives a fractional shake of his head. Don't push it, Jack. But it's Selmec who says, 
The system lords will not permit such attacks to go unchecked. There is grave danger that they will retaliate. Nice! Not only do they have rogue NID landing them up the proverbial creek without the proverbial paddle, but human hosts are meant to be seen and not heard. Anger at the insinuation, the injustice of it. All symbiotes here have fought the Gua'uld for centuries. It is hardly unreasonable to recognize that they have more experience of strategy than hosts whose experience may be limited to a few decades of subsistence farming. Better if the host were to relinquish control. Allow him to handle this. Yeah, the snake would think that, wouldn't it? He holds on, just to piss it off. Seeking a new base must be a priority, Toran is saying. Looks like they're back to politely ignoring him again. As I have already said, if the system lords deem that this breaches the Protected Planets Treaty, then not only the Ta'ari, but also those associated with them, stand to be destroyed. Yeah, the Gould might decide to nuke Earth, but more importantly, let's talk about how this affects the Tok'ra. It's what it all boils down to in the end, despite all the symbiosis and equality bullshit. Well, screw Toran and screw his silent H, too. He's not forgetting that Toran was the one who turned up at the SGC to tell them that the healing device wouldn't be enough. But hey, the Tok'ra just happened to have a spare snake lying around. And that, oh best beloved, is how we ended up in this fucking mess in the first place. Anger banked and buried under the snake's false calm. Like the burner on a stovetop, dull black but hot enough to take the skin off your palm if you lean on it by mistake. Oh, but Skippy's such a nice snake. He's so fucking tired of the ostentatious patient, the condescension, the pretense. Just get it over with. We are certain that these attacks have not been authorized by the Ta'ari, Jalen asks. George and I go way back. Jacob again. He's a good guy and wouldn't lie to me. The ship was stolen. Toran's frowning again. Jalen watches someone in the crowd, then nods permission to speak. I do not believe that Major Carter would be complicit in such a deception either, Malik says. His voice is steady, but his shoulders are inching up around his ears, and he steps back quickly, surprising that he would be willing to risk his tenuous position after the loss of Risa by such outspokenness. It will hardly help his standing if he is seen as swayed by personal attachment to the Ta'ari. Prissy, hypocritical fuckers. Major Carter could have been misinformed, Toran says. Yeah, because that's what we do, spend all our time telling elaborate lies to our own people, 
Oh, no, wait, that would be you guys. Perhaps the question is irrelevant, Jalen suggests. If the attacks were not authorized by Stargate Command, then we must recognize that they cannot speak for all the peoples of Earth. Heads you win, tails I lose. Enough of this crap. Look, he says, as much fun as it is pointing fingers, maybe we'd be better off working out what we're going to do about this? The snake squirms, humiliation so sharp that he almost imagines it physically moving under his skin. Thinks of rocks and the things you find underneath. This time, there's a ripple in the crowd. No whispers, but he can feel knowing glances being exchanged. He's speaking out of turn, all right. The snake tenses, pushing him to hand back control. That'd make it so much easier, wouldn't it? Just take over. He hangs on and feels the familiar, split-second panic, wondering if this is the time when it won't take a no for an answer. He feels sick of wondering. Thank you for your contributions, Colonel O'Neill, Jalen says, all irony. Now, go to the back of the class. Come on, he says, pushing forwards into the circle, and he's looking at her, but all he can feel is the rising pressure in his head, like the sullen air before a thunderstorm, the sky getting ready to fall. He can run off at the mouth on autopilot, not like he hasn't had plenty of practice at snake baiting. What have you guys got to offer that's any better, other than we all sit on our asses waiting for the right time to do something, whenever, in the next thousand years, that is, Canaan, Toran says, and the snake hears the gentleness in his voice and burns with shame. We cannot continue the meeting in good order if your host continues to be so vocal. In other words, shut him up by any means necessary. Oh, and it wants to. The snake wants to so badly he can taste it. Doesn't know why it doesn't go ahead and do it. Jack, this isn't helping. Jacob's voice, but then it could just as easily be Selmak. Whichever the fuck one of them it is if it even matters anymore. He's on the side of the snakes. Yeah, well, screw you, Jake, he says softly. Screw you. We understand that you have been through a great deal, and that it is difficult for you to control yourself, Jalen says, and the sound of her voice rings like a knell. It would be more appropriate if you were to go elsewhere until you can calm yourself. The crowds shifted, people moving aside to leave a clear path between him and the doorway. 
this way to the exit, and don't let the door hit you on the ass on your way out. She looks almost sad. Are you willing to leave, or do you require assistance? Two Tokra step forward from the crowd, and he figures that assistance means the kind involving a zat. Movement in its peripheral vision, and he turns to see another one behind him, feels his hands curled into fists, doesn't know if it's the snake's anger or his, and doesn't give a shit. He's not going to let them drag him. He's not going to let them touch him. Keep your fucking hands off me, he spits. Nobody moves as he stalks out of the room, through the empty corridors, and out of the building. Outside, it's black night, the sky dead with clouds. As the door slams, the snake shoves into control without so much as a buy-your-leave, and he's so startled he doesn't fight it. Are you satisfied? Flat, deadly fury through the distorted tones. What more do you want? I have done everything you requested. I have made all possible accommodations. He clutches for control then, grabbing his voice back as if he's gasping for air. Oh, you have? He snarls. What happened to all that we are Tokra bullshit? I am you and you are me and we are all the walrus. Seething anger that chokes that will not become words. The host does not understand, will not understand that he has destroyed everything. See, Skippy? It's all very well, you pretending you're so hard done by. But let's face it, you're a guauld. You can take over and shut me up any damn time you want. And that makes all of this so much bullshit. A dangerous acceleration letting go, letting grip. The gloves finally off. Finish this now. He would not. He would never. It is anathema. Yeah, but you want to, don't you? And we both know it. Can't lie to me, Skippy. Then it boils up, a surge of anger, hatred, blinding him, white-hot burn igniting in his eyes. If that's what you want, if you think you want to know. It hits him like a wrecking ball, like a blow to the head, so fast and hard you can't fight it. Don't even know how to fight it, nothing like the times the snakes in control of the body, nothing like that at all. Like you're pinned, crushed, a black sack pulled over your head. Can't move, can't breathe, can't think. It's like your head's being held underwater, and you're going to die except that this is the rest of your life, and this is eternity. The snake lets go, and recoils back. Feels like it was years, centuries, but it couldn't have been more than seconds. A flurry of words defensive and frantic. There, and you wanted, and why I will never, never. Fury burned out to ashes in 
an instant. Nothing left but icy cold and clammy self-disgust. He staggers, flung back into control of his own body. His legs won't hold him up. He stumbles to lean against the side of the building, feels like he's concussed, and lets his back slide down the wall, sinking to the ground. His head's in his hands. One of them must have done that. He thinks it might have been him. No, it must have been. The snake's not doing anything. Paralyzed with horror at itself, himself, that he could have done that, and done it so easily, could have wanted to do that. He remembers to breathe, and finds that he is panting, can't catch his breath, can't get a hold of himself. Jesus, it's what he's been expecting all along, but somehow it wasn't what he expected at all, wasn't how he expected it. Underneath, the adrenaline and the shock, he expects to feel something else, something worse, but he doesn't. The snake's almost more freaked out about it than he is. No, no almost, as if it never occurred to him that he had a breaking point, could be so flawed. Yeah, well, welcome to everybody else's fucked up life, Skippy. Oh god, the gold hosts, Sakar and Share, Daniels, Sarah, still, is that what it's like for them all the time? No need to reach for the answer because he knows it already. He can feel it there, back in genetic memory, back before Egera. The memories of so many hosts, so many lifetimes, as if they were his own. Suppression until the host will be still, catatonic, and cause no trouble. But it never enough. Millennia buried alive in your own body, destroyed insane, but not gone. Always there. A pinpoint of consciousness, and the Gua'uld cannot bear it. Twist and contort themselves into grotesque mental shapes to block out that other mind obsessed with the million ways to break down and annihilate the being of another, because they cannot obliterate the other in their own minds. And the memory, too, not his, but his, carried in the nucleus of every cell, every part of his being, of what it meant to realize, to understand, to allow yourself to know and to be bound by the memory, the vow that no one should have to suffer like that ever again. Nausea and cold, like rising shock, the way it feels to bleed out. But that's the snake. All he feels is a weird sense of relief, like he's got the answer to a question, the other shoes finally dropped. Been a long time coming, 
and now it's come. The only surprise is how long it took to get here, to push the snake this far, and how appalled the snake is by his own actions. He can't doubt that, even if he'd like to. That's bedrock. At least now he knows the snake is only, well, human's the wrong word, but he'll take it anyway. Okay, he finds himself saying. It comes out as a whisper, barely audible, but then he's not talking to anyone outside his own head. He has no clue what he's saying okay to, but... Okay. He dreams of alarm clocks and knows he's dreaming. A sea of alarm clocks surrounding his bed, and they're all ringing, so no matter how many he turns off, he can't find them all. Can't go back to sleep. But no, he is asleep. He needs to wake up. Follows the thread of consciousness along, and wakes up running between one footfall and the next. The noise is the rising screech of sirens, and he's sprinting towards the gate, faster than he'd have thought possible, because whatever's happening, it'll be happening there. He's back in control of his body before he knows it, and stumbles, nearly falling flat on his face, the snakes flinching away from control, afraid to hold on to it any longer than necessary, and under any other circumstances, he'd think that was fucking great, except that now is not the time to sprain an ankle. He regains his balance and keeps running, stepping up the pace. It's still dark, the stars clearly visible. There's only the faintest glow in the sky to say that they are headed towards morning, hours to go before the dawn. By the time he gets to the gate, there is a cluster of people round it, silhouetted against the cold shimmer of the event horizon. Most of them are in Ta'ari uniform, rumpled, some still pulling on jackets or tugging clothes straight. They must have been asleep when the alarm sounded. There are Jaffa coming through the gate. At first he thinks they're under attack, but the Jaffa are walking down the steps, staff weapons by their side probably some of Teal'c's people coming back from a scouting mission. Come on, come on, someone chants under his breath. Hands grab Ajafa's arm and pull him to one side, trying to clear the steps, get all of them through as fast as possible. He pushes through the crowd, and the fact that people barely look twice at him, too busy staring at the gate, that's a bad sign all by itself. Pierce is by the DHD, he gets over there in time to hear him tell one of the Jaffa, start getting people to the gate. The Jaffa nods, hard-faced, and takes off at a run towards the tents, trailing his men behind him. Pierce glances over and doesn't seem to recognize him, then shakes himself as if he's still trying to wake up and says, Orbital sensors went off five minutes ago, sir. Looks like incoming ships. A lot of them. We're bugging out as soon as the gate's clear. Shit, 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 this shouldn't be happening. There's no way that anyone should know the location of the Alpha site. No way! And a lot of ships means Gua'uld. No one 
else is in a position to muster a fleet, except the Asgard, and he figures Thor'd say hi before dropping in like this. There must have been a security breach somewhere, undoubtedly among the Jaffa, but he didn't think that. And anyway, there's no time for Skippy's oh-so-charming bigotry. More people are assembling around the gate, Tok'ra and Jaffa, and a scattering of Ta'ari. The last of the Jaffa must have come through the gate, because the wormhole cuts off, plunging them all into darkness. Pierce starts dialing the address for Earth immediately. Only, the lights from the nearby buildings illuminate the scene, and he feels his pupils dilate fast, adapting to night vision with disconcerting speed, and blinks a couple of times. Then, a muted noise goes through the crowd, somewhere between a whisper and a moan. He looks upwards, and it's as if the stars are moving, pieces of constellations sliding out of place. Then the images resolve into the shapes of ships in the dark sky, growing with impossible speed. Not stars, but the tiny lights of thousands of windows tracing the angular outline of a mothership and another. It's like the way a city at night looks from a plane, coming into land, with the lights of office blocks and skyscrapers rushing up to meet you, distant, glittering toys becoming huge and real. For a moment, it feels as if they're hanging upside down from the skin of the planet, looking down into the sky at the ships rising up towards them. And then the world turns right side up again, and for the love of God, why is Pierce being so slow? Another chevron on the gate locks and lights. Pierce dials the last symbol and slaps his palm down on the central dome of the DHD. And nothing happens. He can see smaller outlines breaking away from the motherships. Now knows that in a minute he'll be able to identify the round shapes of Alkesh's bombers. Pierce starts redialing Earth, swearing continuously under his breath, a flurry of obscenities that he's probably unaware of, or he'd think twice before using them in a presence of a senior officer, snaked or not. He slams the dome down again, harder this time, as if that'll make it work. Again, no lock, no kawoosh, no wormhole, no nada. The SGC's gates already locked. Could be the coincidence from hell. Maybe the SGCs decided to cut the electricity bill by sending out gate teams at O-Dark-Whatever. Or the Gould are deliberately tying it up. Probably would have tried to tie up the gate here if it hadn't already been active. Or... But he's not going to think about any of the other options. 
the Alkesh come in low, skimming through the sky, flying saucers for the psycho killer set. He knows the equipment at the Alpha site. They've got no ground to air, no ships, nothing. Light streaks through the air like a comet, then more streaks, a meteor shower. One's coming closer, turning into a fireball, and people dive for cover, hitting the ground with their arms, shielding their heads. Around him, he feels the ground explode upwards, rippling into the air. The punch of successive impacts jars through his bones. When he lifts his head, he sees that the gate's still standing. But there's a red glow behind him, and he turns to see buildings on fire. Some of the Quinset huts crushed and shredded like the tin cans they are. He can hear screams, too. They're going to have injured to move, on top of everything else, if they've got anywhere to move to, if they're not trapped. Pierce scrambles back to his feet and heads back to the DHD. In the sky, he watches the lights of the Alkesh shrink as they head out. Pierce is punching out another address, and he recognizes it halfway through. Kimura, but that's no damn use. The replacement hammer would take out the Tok'ra and the Jaffa, and Pierce must have figured out the same thing because he breaks off and waits for the DHD to reset. He can see the Alkesh turning, coming back round for another bombing grunt. Pierce is frozen, hand hanging suspended over the DHD. Too slow. Too slow. Too slow. Easy to shove him out of the way. No time. And start dialing. Coordinates rising effortlessly from his memory. Their memory. One address he's certain the Gould don't have. He slams the dome down and watches the vortex spill out, shining and beautiful. Dead silence, and everyone's standing around like idiots. He's the only one moving. He grabs the nearest Tok'ra and drags him up the steps, telling him, Vouch for them! Before pitching him through the event horizon. Someone needs to make sure the Jaffa and humans aren't met with staff weapon blasts. Pierce is picking himself up off the ground, looking dazed. Tok'ra outpost! He snaps and watches Pierce pull himself together and turn to yell, Moving out, people! Get through as fast as you can! Keep the gate clear! At least there are no civilians here. Everyone's trained. There's no panic, nobody tripping or fighting each other to get to the gate. The people nearest the steps start streaming through the event horizon, while others break away, heading back to the buildings. Fire's a bitch. Way too easy for people to get trapped. They're going to need help fighting the fire and getting the injured out. No hesitation. A microsecond's hesitation. Unforgivable. But he's already running. The next impact shakes the ground and knocks him off his feet. No idea what kind of ordnance they're using, but it looks like they're trying to bomb the crap out of the place from the air. 
not trying to land ground troops, at least not yet. Debris flying, and something breaks his arm, hot and sharp, metal shredded and blasted into shrapnel. It's ripped through his sleeve, hell, his arm, nothing he can't heal. A thought shuts off the pain. He can keep it shut off for a long time. He pushes up onto his knees, feels someone grab his elbow to help him up, and turns to see Brocktack, face smeared with dirt and smoke. Get your people to the gate, he says. Another impact rocks the ground, but this time they both stay standing. Brocktack doesn't let go of his arms, eyes locked on his face, intent as a hawk's. Where to? Safe haven he says, and shit, he hears the distortion and the echo in his own voice. But Brakdak doesn't even blink, just nods and turns, breaking into an easy run. Guess it doesn't even matter if he was speaking Gua'uld for a minute there. The Jaffa tents are flimsy, poles and heavy canvas. They're going up like torches, but they're a hell of a lot easier to get out of fast, and they're less debris to trap people. He turns towards the central building's computers. Someone needs to wipe them, ensure no classified intel falls into Guo'uld hands. But someone groans nearby, and he veers back. A Jaffa, lying on the ground with one leg twisted at a vicious angle. A quick check doesn't suggest any spinal injuries. The guy's safe to move, and he gets an arm under his shoulder and pulls him up onto his feet with most of his weight on the good leg. But the guy's bigger than he is, and it's going to be a bitch getting him to the gate. Then, the weight's being taken from him, and he turns to see another Jaffa and Tokra getting a solid grip on the guy. He ducks out and lets them get on with it. The medics have got the stretchers out, and people are being carried to the gate in a haphazard relay. So many people, so many wounded. He has some idea of how many people there are at the Alpha site, but no idea how many of them have already gone through the Chabai. How many are left? He loses track of the time as he helps lift and carry, helps steer people towards the gate, and hits the ground with the others at each new airstrike. And this one's no different, fire arcing through the sky, but he sees the trajectory, sees where it's going to land. Someone's memories tell him what a direct hit could do to a Nakwada power generator, and he bellows, Damn, everyone, get down! at the top of his lungs and hits the ground rolling. He sees the light from the explosion even through his closed eyelids. When he looks up, a pillar of oily flames and black smoke rises where the generator shed was. Metal sheets and concrete blocks blasted across the grounds. He braces his hands on his knees and stares at it dumbly, hypnotized by the destruction. Pins and needles stabbed through his skin, fucking Nakwada. But he takes a step forwards without thinking drawn in. Someone's down on the ground, pinned under the rubble. He lifts the metal H-beam off him, thank God for snake strength, and recognizes Pierce. Must have stayed behind to help get all his men out. 
We don't leave people behind. He doesn't want to think about what's broken and smashed, about the bloody skin he glimpses or Pierce's uniform is torn away. Someone is talking. He's talking. The host is talking. A stream of steady, meaningless words, the sort he can produce in his sleep. It's okay. Hold still. Gonna be okay. You're gonna be fine. Gonna get you out of here. Because the words don't matter. Even if Pierce is still conscious, all he's hearing is tone, and all he needs is a voice, a lifeline to hold on to, the promise that it's okay. Someone else is taking care of it. He's trying to work out how the hell he's going to get Pierce to the gate without hurting him worse when a heavy hand drops onto his shoulder and a deep, familiar voice sounds in his ear. The gate cannot remain open for much longer. We must leave now. The Jaffa, Teal'c, he can't leave. He doesn't know if they've got everyone through yet. He has to stay. But Teal'c is there, helping him lift Pierce. He grabs Pierce's other arm and pulls it over his shoulders, and then they're up, heading for the gate at a stumbling run, boots thudding up the stone steps, and they don't even break stride as the event horizon gulps them down. The End of Chapter 5